Well, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for quite some time, and this week we come to chapter 8, verse 22, where we come to the well-known story of Jesus asleep in the boat, calming a storm by his words, and in turn, uh, asking his disciples, where is your faith? Again, we're in chapter 8, picking it up with verse 22, just a few short verses. One day he, that is Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to our God. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your Son and how he has given us of his Spirit that we might be united to him and to each other. So we pray that during this time that we too would have eyes to see and ears to hear and feet to follow, that we would grow in our faith, as so many of us here would gladly say that we are people of little faith. We pray that you would grow us from immaturity to maturity, and that you would use moments just like this one, meditating on your word together with you, to do that very thing. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that initial phrase, one day Jesus got into a boat, uh, tells us that during his time going throughout cities and villages in Galilee, and that's, that's how chapter 8 just sets it out, that all these events are happening roughly at the same time that this event, too, also happened. And I think this passage and the next passage, which you're probably familiar with, too, with the demon-possessed man in a Gentile area, and he's known as Legion, and all the pigs that are involved and all that, that they're meant to be taken together as a unit. And I, I will touch a little bit on that next section today, but I'm focusing obviously on, on this, this one I just read. But more broadly, if you put them all together with the storm and the exorcism that we'll look at next week, plus the next two events after that, which is the healing of, of Jairus' daughter and then the healing of a woman uh, in the crowds, uh, all of these things are linked to what the good soil of the parable of the sower is after. And if you remember, for the last three weeks or so, we've been working through first the meaning of the good sower and then uh, why Jesus told uh, parables like he did. And then last week with the warning to his disciples about how they hear, how they listen to his word and how, and how they do it. And I think all four of what we're looking at over the next month or so are all linked in some way to what the good soil is. As in, these, these are four examples of what the good soil looks like. And really, as you look at them, they defy uh, our ability to predict who the good soil might be. And at times, and it, it might be like the disciples in our passage struggling to believe. Or it may be like a Gentile man possessed by thousands of demons. And, and if you consider our passage today in, in isolation, at the very least, it serves as a warning to the disciples, or at least to be a little bit more gentle, as a moment of, of self-evaluation or, or self-reflection, calling them to consider whether they themselves are the good soil or not. And Jesus does this sort of thing uh, 
from time to time with the 12, notably uh, in Matthew 16 when he asked them to report on who the crowds uh, were saying Jesus is. And then he, he says, okay, he asked them directly, who do you say that I am? And in my view, this is the most important question every human faces. Who do you say Jesus is? And if you consider 8.13 and, and Jesus' explanation of the meaning of the seed that fell on the rock in that, that overall parable of the sower, uh, those are people who hear the word and receive it with joy, as clearly the disciples had done in, in various degrees. But in a time of testing, like, say, an unexpected storm on a huge lake, those same people fall away because there is no root. And as we saw Jesus warn in 8.18 last week, take care then how you hear. The disciples are forced to reckon with the question of whether uh, they have faith in Jesus or not and what kind of soil they are. And I think he invites us as his disciples to do the same. I don't think Jesus is intending, however, to create a crisis of faith uh, in his disciples so much as he's calling them to self-evaluation, like we will we'll do with the confession of sin here uh, in a little bit when we come to the Lord's Supper. That's entirely what that is. It's about coming to grips with yourself in some degree. We can't, of course, be totally honest with ourselves. We can't see ourselves clearly. But we are called to come and evaluate ourselves as we come to the Lord's table. He commands us to do that very thing. Well, when the storm hits the lake, the disciples, a good many of which were professional fishermen uh, and thus very good sailors, are after exhaust, exhausting all their efforts, they finally recognize uh, that the storm is well beyond their ability uh, to sail. And so they turn to Jesus, presumably remembering the events from chapter 5 and the miraculous catch of fish, and they say, Master, Master, we are perishing. And that is a statement of fact uh, with the implied, can you do something about this, Jesus? So despite their initial failures to withstand the storm and their own strength, they did turn to Jesus. So they did have some faith. And like the crowds in the synagogue of chapter 4, after Jesus exercised a demon from a man, they marveled. They marveled at and, and they really had fear and wonder over Jesus and what he had just done. But to read this passage is fundamentally about the disciples' response to Jesus rebuking the storm, though obviously that's pretty important. I think it misses Luke's, Luke's teaching on who Jesus is, and that's the real impact of what he wants us to see. Who is Jesus? So this event intentionally links with the book of Jonah and, and maps directly Onto it, almost like you could see it doing this. So, the book of Jonah, as we talked about last spring, and as I, I'm reworking through on our, our podcast stream, I, for my money, is a remarkable, tightly wound, genius level literary work. I would say that about the whole Bible, but as you could tell, I'm kind of taken with the book of Jonah these last months. And if you know the book of Jonah, I think our passage assumes really the whole book, but it obviously maps on to Jonah chapter 1, where Jonah, a, a presumably faithful prophet, up to the moment of receiving God's call to preach to Nineveh, uh, foolishly attempts to flee from God's presence. Now, I'm not going to explain all the historical 
background or literary connections in the book of Jonah. You can just go listen to the podcast for that if you want that sort of thing. But it is clear that Jonah rejected God's call in his life because, one, he knew that the northern kingdom of Israel, where he ministered, had been in rebellion and unfaithfulness to God for hundreds of years, and that God had promised to exile his people from the land for such behavior. And he promised that in the book of Deuteronomy before the conquest of the land ever happened. So Jonah knows his people. Now think about that. Hundreds of years. Think about the church in America. That's kind of hard to nail down exactly what that is. But just just think about this church for, say, 120 years openly rejecting God. That's, That's the picture, right? And then two... In turn, because of their rebellion, and this is also from the book of Deuteronomy, it's a promise. God says he would turn a people, quote, who are not my people into my people. So Jonah, to borrow a phrase from Daniel, I think saw the writing on the wall. Israel will soon be conquered and taken into captivity and exile by the Assyrians, who God would make into his people through the preaching of of Jonah. And this is, of course, exactly what happens. And though jo- Jonah later admits to knowing God is not only kind and good, full of steadfast loving kindness, still he initially and foolishly tries to flee from God's presence. And this is, in a lot of ways, more foolish or maybe sillier than, say, an angry six year old trying to run away from home and making it to the neighbor's house before getting cold feet. No, this is actually more like trying to hold your breath in angry protest for rightly being disciplined by your parents. I'll show you. Right? What's, what's going to happen with that? It's just dumb, right? So Jonah got on a boat to get as far in the opposite direction from both the land of Israel and Nineveh as he could. And by leaving the land and going upon the sea, symbolically, and this is how Israelites would have understood the meaning of his actions, he was now in the midst of the chaos of the Gentile world. The sea is often associated in the Old Testament with chaos or the abyss or with Gentiles, and we're going to see all those things in play next week with the demon-possessed man and the pigs and all that. The wilderness, for example, as opposed to, say, a cultivated garden, think Eden, or a city, think Jerusalem, often functions this way too, like when Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan over 40 days. Now, the details of the wilderness, wild animals that are there, Satan, fasting, being tempted, all that stuff, that's not random. It's like, well, I guess that's kind of weird. No, it's all purposeful, and they're rich with meaning. And the imagery of the sea as, as chaos or as the danger of Gentiles, for example, is easy enough to understand if you've ever been close to the ocean or even on a big lake on a really windy day. Just think of it this way. 71% or so of the earth is covered in oceans. We can't live there. That's not our realm. We have no dominion there. There's things in the ocean that can eat you up, right? Monsters live there. Or in the case of Israel, Israel was like the ark carrying the presence of God in a great big ocean of wicked and violent Gentiles. 
That's how it felt to be Israel in the midst of the world. And so they use that imagery all the time. Not to get overly technical, but I'm going to. The Greek term used in the Septuagint, uh, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament from after the time of Daniel. Uh, that was meant for Greek-speaking Jews. So if you just know that the people are exiled from the land, this happens, they're exiled from the land, and they're there so long that they no longer know Hebrew. They start speaking Greek because that was the, the main language that people spoke. So you need to know the word of the Lord. So they translate it into Greek. That's the Septuagint. Well, the, the term um, that happens there in the book of Jonah, it can mean great fish. It certainly can mean that. But it can also mean, and has a broader meaning, and you can see this throughout Greek literature, of sea monster. Like the beast that came out of the sea in Daniel's vision. And in Daniel's vision, if you're familiar with that, and we'll get to that in the Sunday evening series this year, the beasts that come out of the sea are great Gentile empires, like the Greek and the Roman empires. So, that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish isn't merely God using a tough love and weird sort of discipline. It was purposely pointing forward through a real, though clearly unusual event to what was coming for Israel. Israel would be swallowed by the Assyrians, a great Gentile sea monster, though Israel would not die, though it clearly would feel like it was dying. So if you're struggling with the whole idea of how a great fish could also be thought of as a sea monster, and I'm going to go into a whole lot more detail on this week's Jonah episode, quickly, just think of it this way. If you're ever on open water, if you're on open water and were to encounter, say, a whale, and I'm not talking like you're on a cruise liner, like you're either in open water yourself or you're in a small boat and you encounter, say, a whale or perhaps maybe like an, an orca, perhaps, or something like that, or, or a shark or a giant squid. And you're not going to be thinking scientifically about that. You're like, oh, I think the, uh, the nomenclature for that animal. No, you're going to be thinking, that's a monster. i got to get away from this. And if, if any of you have ever had the experience of, of swimming deep in a lake, which you cannot see into, right? Something bumps your leg, and you're like, oh, here we are. What is that thing that's coming from? That's, that's the imagery. That's the feel of this. They can feel like monsters. That's the view, so rightly so. So Jonah, at this point, a rebellious prophet trying to escape his call to preach to Gentiles, is on a ship full of Gentiles in the middle of the chaotic sea when God appoints a storm that comes after him. And that language is important. It's not random. He appoints it. And it's, it's no more random, that storm is no more random than the great fish is random. They were appointed by God. That means they answer to his voice. They do what he says. Meanwhile, Jonah is asleep in the hole. And it's no mere sleep, but a death-like sleep, like what was seen with Adam in Genesis 2 at the creation of Eve, or with Abraham in Genesis 15 when God cuts a covenant with him. And the sailors can't beat the storm, and it dawns on them hey, this is not any mere storm. And in turn, they draw lots, especially asking whatever God is out there, whatever God may be listening, to show them who's at fault for the storm. And the lot falls to Jonah. 
And in response, Jonah tells the Gentiles exactly who he is. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That is, I belong to, to Yahweh Elohim. That's Genesis 1.1. That's when you see Lord in all caps, that's what that is. Yahweh Elohim, Lord of Lord, King of Kings. That's the idea. Who is the God of Israel, the dry land, and the Gentiles, the sea. In other words, the God I serve is creator and Lord of all things. And they asked Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? And he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And so the sailors, not wanting to kill him, prayed to Jonah's God, to Yahweh Elohim, to have mercy on them and to not lay on them this innocent man's blood because they offered him as it pleased God. So they recognize God wants this. God wants to sacrifice Jonah. And so they listen to his word through his prophet. So they hurl him over the side, and the sea immediately stopped raging, and the men feared the Lord exceedingly, offered a sacrifice, and made vows. That's all conversion language. Every last bit of that is conversion language. And if they, they offered a sacrifice, for example, more than likely that included eating part of the animal, which means like the Levitical system, and like we're going to be doing in a little bit with the Lord's Supper, they ate a meal with God. That's what's in view. So ironically, though, Jonah was trying not to preach to Gentiles. These Gentiles have come to worship the true God at his word, even as Jonah's own people refused to worship the true God. So Jonah chapter 1 is really the story of Gentiles coming to faith through an unfaithful Israelite prophet who had orthodox beliefs, but was refusing to listen to God and do what he says. So it's really the story of Israel in miniature, with Jonah representing Israel and the Gentile sailors representing the world. So just like we've seen with Jesus preaching performing miracles... What brings the sailors to faith is through Jonah's word about the true God and then that same God stilling of the storm. The Gentiles hear the word of the prophet, Yahweh is the true God. They do what the prophet says to do, hurl me into the water, and God's wrath is averted immediately. Jonah then is held under the power of death for three days and three nights in the belly of that, that great fish, that sea monster, until God spoke to it, commanding it to resurrect Jonah back onto dry land, which I think uh, was speaking of Israel itself. And it's telling that God commands the great fish, which is not only a symbol really of the coming Assyrian conquering of them, but also a symbol of spiritual evil. And I'll get to that this upcoming week, both in the sermon and probably that podcast too. And it does, it does exactly what he says for it to do. It, it, it answers to his voice. And we'll see the same thing at work next week with the demons and the pigs. And from that point, Jonah goes into one of the major symbolic centers of Gentiles in a unified rebellion set against the true God and preached that in 40 days' time, the true God would judge Nineveh, the capital city of the growing Assyrian empire, and level it. And the people, starting with the king and going all the way down to the peasants, they repent, and they take up the posture of death. That's why 
They put on sackcloth and ashes. That's what that, that signifies. We are dead and we know it. Recognizing that apart from God's mercy, they will surely die. And what's so damning about this moment is that Israel, God's own people, had refused to repent at the word of the prophets hundreds of years that God had sent to her, whereas Nineveh immediately turned at his word. It's yet another Gentile conversion story in the book of Jonah. And as we've seen Jesus teach, God's people, the good soil, are those who hear God's word and then do what he says. And they, in turn, look to God and find life in him. And now, as you could probably imagine, there's way more. We didn't even really cover chapter 4. We did not cover chapter 4 of Jonah at all, and we're not going to. Even as I think Jonah chapter 4 is critical for both understanding what happened eventually with the northern kingdom of Israel after Jonah's ministry, even as it looks forward to the Israel of Jesus' day. In fact, hopefully you've been able to hear hints of what Israel of Jesus' day was like and how Jesus was very much like a Jonah preaching to them. But we're going to leave that for another time. Uh, so hopefully you can already hear how these two stories, the one I'm supposed to be covering today, and Jonah, how they, they map onto each other. So clearly, let's just go through it fast. There are two voyages on boats, you know, one on the open sea and one, one on the, the smaller sea, really a lake, of Galilee. Uh, as a side, Luke calls it a lake. Uh, Matthew calls Galilee a sea every time, and I, I think he's pointing to the Gentile nature of that sea. Anyway, Jonah is an unwilling prophet of the northern, northern kingdom of Israel. Jesus is a faithful and willing prophet of the line of Judah. Jonah was trying to escape God's presence uh, in Israel in order to not preach to the Gentiles. Jesus is intentionally uh, leaving God's throne room, and next week we'll look at how we left Israel itself for a time, bringing God's presence to both Jew and Gentile. Remember, he's the tabernacle. He's God with us. Both encounter a storm. Jonah's storm was appointed by God as judgment. And though the text does not say this, we might presume that God sent the storm as a form of testing for the disciples, even as Jesus stills the storm with his word. Either way, both storms answer to God, their maker. Both Jonah and Jesus were in a death-like sleep on the boat, and upon waking, both their identities are clarified. Right? Jonah says, I am a Hebrew who worships Yahweh Elohim. And Jesus, by his speech, demonstrates that he is Yahweh Elohim, come in the flesh. The sailors on Jonah's boat are converted and worship God in fear and wonder. The disciples on Jesus' boat, who are already converted but are clearly immature in their faith, respond in fear and wonder. And as an aside, the sailors feared Yahweh Elohim exceedingly, is what the text said, and offered worship to him. The disciples, though they clearly have faith, they wonder who Jesus is. Now, after the storm, both Jonah and Jesus preach in hostile Gentile areas. For Jonah, the whole of Nineveh repents. But for Jesus, only one demon-possessed man repents, though Jesus shows his authority over literally a thousand demons. And the rest of the town where he was ask him to leave out of their fear. With Jonah, judgment is preached and averted for a time. You know, Forty days and Nineveh is toast. That, that's his, his message. With Jesus, he tells the demons, this is next week, 
that they will not escape the coming judgment. And in turn, during his Passion Week, he warns that Jerusalem, like Nineveh, would soon be destroyed, which happened 40 years later, or within that generation. But of course, at the center of Jonah's story is his death and resurrection. An unfaithful prophet is given as a sacrifice for the sake of the Gentile sailors. He is thrown into the chaos of the sea. He is swallowed by a creature that represents the serpent, the Satan, and that And in that death-like state, he repents and is raised to life and in turn becomes a faithful prophet to the Gentile world. Now, in that sense, Jonah's life and calling is a picture of what was going to happen with the northern kingdom of Israel. It's unfaithfulness to what God called her to be as a light to the nations, her rebellion against the throne of David, her exile into the Gentile sea of the Assyrian Empire with the initial repentance of the king of Nineveh, which cushioned some of the blow of God's judgment. He did that on purpose. And in turn, later on, the judgment of Assyria itself. That's all in the book of Jonah. As we so often see in the Bible, Jonah's actual life, and I think he he understood this after the fact. I don't think he understood it as he was going through it. It was a living symbol pointing beyond the realities of his moment. So Jonah represented Israel's life with God. So does Jesus. So does Jesus. So Jesus is a better Jonah. He is a faithful prophet, God's own son, the one through whom and for whom all things were made, who by his word commands things like the weather. Creation answers to its maker, and so it answers to Jesus. But the remainder of the story of Jesus as a better and faithful Jonah, is yet to be played out in the book of Luke. Jesus will die at the hands of Gentiles, enduring the storm of God's wrath for a rebellious Israel, and in turn will be resurrected to new life and give that life to both Jew and Gentile alike. So like Jonah, Jesus preached repentance to both Jews and Gentiles, and many rejected him, but not all. Often the most unlikely people responded to his Word. And like Jonah, through his death and resurrection, the Gentiles would come to faith. And the people who are not my people would become my people. And Israel, like Jonah clearly was, will grow jealous and angry about this. If you know anything about the book of Jonah, Jonah gets mad at God for being gracious and kind to Nineveh. And that's part of what Paul, I think, is after in Romans chapter 9 through 11. But I'll save that for a a different day. So one of the questions people tend to ask when they see the overlap of these two stories is, why did Luke write this this way? Is he just making it up? Is he unoriginal and can't come up with a better story? And that's certainly how modern liberal scholars often read the Bible. Well, listen, Luke is not making this story up. He didn't think Jonah was a really cool story and decided to rewrite it with Jesus as the protagonist. He's not like Disney or Marvel that has one story to tell and just keeps changing up the characters with new and different music that sounds largely the same. That's not what's going on here. No, it's more like Luke 24, where after the death and resurrection of Jesus, two disciples are on the road to Emmaus, which is about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And it's actually on the very same day Jesus was resurrected. And instead of waiting on Jesus in Jerusalem like he had commanded his disciples to do, they've left. And on their way to Emmaus, they encounter Jesus, but they don't recognize him. 
And when Jesus comes upon them, they're talking about everything that's happened over the last weeks, and Jesus asks them about it, and they essentially say, where have you been? Have you been living under a rock? And then proceed to tell them about Jesus, their hope that he was the Messiah, how the chief priests and rulers delivered him over to crucifixion, how some of the women who were also disciples reported their encounter with the empty tomb and the angels announcing the resurrection, and how some of the other disciples like Peter and John, had gone to see the tomb, and it was just like the women said it was. It was empty. And that's where they were. And Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And at that point, he begins to teach them, starting with Moses, that is Genesis, and going all through the prophets, like Jonah, all the things concerning himself. Can you imagine that Bible study? It had to be awesome, right? In fact, they, they comment, was not our chest on fire? I bet it was. I bet it was. But it's not until they sit down to a meal with him where he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, like we will shortly do, that they recognized him. Luke isn't making this stuff up. No, he knows that all of Scripture from Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation is about Jesus the Christ, every last bit of it. So Luke has learned to see that all of the Old Testament anticipated Jesus. Some passages, it whispers his name. You go through the book of Leviticus and you might wonder, right? Other passages yell his name. And Jonah is one of those books. It yells his name. So what does Jonah's life Teach us about Jesus. Well, Jesus is, as as Paul describes him, the one through whom and for whom all things were made. And all of creation, whether it is punishing storms or spiritual sea monsters in the form of a great fish, answer to his voice. And what you need to see is is we're so used to as, as modern people because we love things like the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I love or we, we so prioritize certain parts of Paul that we're so used to thinking about God in, in propositions. And that's, that's important. God is all about propositional truth, but if you look at how often the Bible presents it in terms of story and these images, think about it. To say God is the creator God and to say he silences storms with a word. He appoints great fish in the deeps of the sea to swallow men and to resurrect them. That gives you a wholly different and deeper picture of what it means to call him Lord of Lord and King of Kings. Now think about that. Everything from tsunamis to the demons answer to him. That's who we worship. That's who Jesus is. He is not merely the king of our hearts as the romantic, sentimental troubadours of contemporary Christian music my whole life like the saying, no, he is truly and actually the King of kings and Lord of lords. And though, as Psalm 2 describes him as ruling with a rod of iron, which the demons know, he is merciful and compassionate, not wishing that any would die. And as Ezekiel Ezekiel teaches, he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, even the Assyrians, which make ISIS look like a fifth-grade party. No, he does not wish for any to die. So he sends prophets generation after generation to his own people who rejected him, and he even sent them to the brutally violent Assyrian capital of Nineveh. So just as God sent his son to rebellious Israel, so too Jesus sent his apostle Paul to the very heart of the Roman Empire. 
an empire that made Assyria look weak. But as Jonah well knew, though being cast into the sea stopped the storm, his own death could not atone for his own life or anyone else's life. It's why he prays for mercy in what would soon be his watery grave in the belly of spiritual evil. So Jesus, who was righteous and good in every way, could be cast into the sea and die for not just the sins of his people, but the sins of the whole world. And while Jonah's symbolic resurrection led to the repentance of Nineveh, Jesus' resurrection led to the new creation of the world and the giving of the Spirit, which is the down payment of our life together with him, which is what we enjoy right now. And because of Jesus' resurrection, we too have the hope of real resurrection. Not symbolic like Jonah's. I'm not saying he wasn't vomited onto the land. I think he was. But real resurrection in the sense of we are dead and in the grave. And we will have life in the life to come. And Jesus continues like the road to Emmaus in, in Luke 24 to teach his people not only to read all of Scripture in light of him, but to read all of life the whole world in light of him, so that even though our days may be hard, we are not a people without hope, just like Jonah was not without hope, even in the belly of that great fish. So our lives have just as much meaning as Jonah's because God is accomplishing his goals, his grand redemptive story, and the ordinary, everyday encounters of our life. And so we too, like the sailors on Jonah's boat and the disciples with Jesus, we have the privilege of breaking bread with God. So whereas perhaps you know, family members or friends or work buddies or whoever will look at what we do here in just a few minutes as a dead ritual that means nothing. It's just as, as make-believe and no better a story than a fish swallowing a man. We who have been given eyes to see and ears to hear, we can take in with this simple Simple sacrament, the story of the world that Yahweh Elohim, the creator of the heavens and the earth, has given his son through whom and for whom all things were made for us and our salvation, and in him we have life and we break bread. What we do now anticipates the life to come in which we know him face to face and we have communion with him. He is literally within us through his spirit, uniting us to him and to each other. And so through these simple elements, and they're simple. They're so simple, right, of, of bread and wine given to us by Christ and celebrated in his name. The Holy One of Israel communes with us. He builds us up in faith, hope, and love. He strengthens us, whether you feel it or not. And he works to sanctify us in his name. The same God who resurrected Jonah by his word. The same God who resurrected his son by his word has promised to do the same for you. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of life in your son through your spirit. You are good. You are so good. And your steadfast love endures forever. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit.